Tonight I'm going to tell a story of the first sexual revolution. It happened long ago in the days of the High Roman Empire. Late in the year A.D. 50, the Apostle Paul was captured by a violent mob in the city of Philippi. When they got a hold of him, they beat him brutally. Luckily, some soldiers arrived on the scene, saved his life. Unluckily, they threw him into prison. When he finally got out, he hobbled off, broken and bruised. And he walked in that condition 75 miles to Thessalonica. Shortly after arriving there, he does the same thing he did in Philippi. He finds the nearest crowd of people and tells them the gospel. The same thing happens in Thessalonica that happens in Philippi. A mob gets riled up and they go after him. This time he escapes their clutches by limping off under the cover of darkness and sneaking along, again broken, bruised, for 50 miles until he gets to Berea. But the folks from Thessalonica got wind of his escape route, and they show up in Berea. So off he goes, this time stowed away on a boat, traveling down the Aegean Sea to Athens, where he makes a beeline for the first largest crowd he could find, and he starts the whole cycle over again. He ends up on trial for his life. Same trial, same place, same charges that Socrates was brought under. Socrates didn't make it out alive. And Paul, after a remarkable defense of himself, acting as his own lawyer, we should see him in our imagination, lurching out of town walking along for three or four days, and finally arriving in Corinth. The bustling seat of Roman power in that part of the world. And as he arrives, notice, it is not only his body that's weak. He is mentally and emotionally exhausted. He's anxious about the Thessalonian Christians after the riots and the threats being made against them. He's short of funds, and he's all alone. Several years later, in one of his moments of understatement, he writes to the Corinthians and says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I came to you in weakness, in great fear and trembling. And that whole four to eight week ordeal I just traced out is what he's referencing. Trembling. Weakness. Now imagine what this broken, bruised, trembling, fearful man sees when he walks into Corinth. As he staggers toward the city, looming over the town was the massive Acrocorinth. An 1,800-foot towering rock face. And on the top of this huge rock is the temple to Aphrodite, looming over the city that stretches out below it to the seashore. 
As Paul enters this port city, he would have been confronted by the bewildering noise of power and commerce. See him making his way to the center of town. As he does, he's surrounded by a loud cacophony of temples, markets, brothels, merchant stalls, and public offices. Watch as this solitary, fearful missionary creeps along into such an overwhelming cityscape. And like many of the other cities, this city is filled with people in the prison of a massive social imbalance. There are just a few rich people and everyone else is either grievously poor and illiterate or they are slaves. In fact, we know that the Roman population at this time was one of the largest slave societies ever. Over 10% of its population were slaves. But in cities like this, over half the population were slaves. And the reason this matters for us tonight is because when it comes to sex, in the world in which Christianity was born, your sex life was absolutely determined by your social location. If you were a free woman, the rules were hard and fast. In a society where the average life expectancy, if you survived birth, was in the mid-twenties, the demands of reproduction were unavoidable. Marriage came early. We don't have time to wait. The legal age for marriage was 12. Most girls got married in their mid-teens. The very highest class held off marriage on rare occasion until their late teens. And your highest priority was to be modest. Modesty was how you made it absolutely clear that your babies belonged to your husband. Modesty was the one glory of a free woman. Girls were to be virgins when they married, and then there must be no suspicion whatsoever that you were ever with another man. Ancient women, in the words of the classical historian Kyle Harper, lived every moment in a high-state games of suspicious observation. Your job was to produce babies for the state. Rome needed citizens and soldiers. Now, if you were a free man, the rules were different. The code of masculinity hated any hint of a man acting feminine, which in their society uh, meant passive or soft. And nobody imagined that you would be chaste. In fact, this is astonishing. There is not even a word in Latin or Greek for a male virgin. No word exists. None exists. It was so beyond imagination, they didn't even have a word for it. The rule for men was 
not purity. The rule for men was moderation. Your job was to show you were in control. But even then, no one expected moderation among boys once they hit puberty and between puberty until they were in their mid-twenties. You see, most men did not marry until they were in their late twenties. And at the beginning of puberty, the widespread cultural view was that it was impossible and unhealthy to regulate the sex life of a male from puberty until their early 20s. The most that could be hoped for was that the young man in this frantic period did nothing that would bring himself harm. And then in their early 20s, it was expected that the young men would cool off and ease into a more respectable self-control and eventually get married. Now, don't get me wrong. Once a boy reached puberty, there were rules. There were two non-negotiable rules in the Greco-Roman world. Number one, under no circumstances will you ever have sex with another man's wife. And number two, under no circumstances will you be passive. And in terms of sexuality, this meant at its most fundamental level, and I'm sorry for the crassness, It meant that a freeborn male should never be penetrated. Those were the only rules. No rules about who you had sex with with regard to gender or age. Only no sex with another man's wife and do not be penetrated. The social code of manliness was as severe and unforgiving as the code of modesty for women. So there were, to be clear, two entirely different sets of standards for sex. One for free men and the other for free women. If you were not free, none of these rules applied. And in fact, the entire approach to sex in the Roman world depended on the existence of people for whom these rules could never be true. Slaves. The high Roman Empire in which Christianity was born, in which Paul stumbles into Corinth, it was a slave society. Chattel slavery. And the numbers are astronomical. Slaves were everywhere. And a slave's body had no legal or social protection. In the words of one of the foremost historians of ancient Roman slavery and sexuality, again, I am sorry for the crassness, Domestic slaves were little more than breathing furniture. Sex was a domestic service. And therefore, slaves were subjected to untrammeled sexual abuse. The man of the house could use any slave, male or female, child or adult, as a sexual receptacle. A famous saying from Greece in the 4th century applies to what we're talking about in the time of imperial Rome. Demosthenes. We have courtesans for our pleasure, prostitutes for our daily needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. And this wasn't scandalous. This was self-evident. 
One of the functions of slaves and prostitutes in the Roman mind, and almost all prostitutes were slaves. One of the functions of slaves and prostitutes in the Roman mind was that they prevented adultery by being a safety valve for male lust. The fundamental belief was that male sexual energy should be and had to be expended. So in an empire saturated with, with the bodies of slaves and prostitutes, in an empire saturated with these bodies, sex was readily available. We have got to think of this. We have got to imagine pornography's availability today was slavery's availability of sex then. In fact, some historians say that the ubiquity of slaves in this moment in the Roman Empire replaced what masturbation has done at other moments in other cultures. A horrible saying from a well-known politician was if a man's male member was engorged, find the nearest slave and quoting, stick it in. This was the world. Paul walked into when he walked into Corinth. And sex was cheap. In an ordinary town, the price of sex was the price of a loaf of bread. Now just do some math for a minute. Average age, 20. A decade out of a man's life where there's no rule, but don't have sex with another man's wife and don't be penetrated. Where all of society says it is a need that you must experience and fulfill. Where a prostitute's act of sex costs the price of a loaf of bread. You can imagine the crushing amount of sexual acts a woman had to perform to survive and to profit her owners. The horrendous fact of the matter is that the bodies of slaves were nothing more than inert matter. One historian says that slaves in brothels, they, they experienced a slow, the word in Latin is made into a corpse. A slow encorpsement. And then there was the art, the wall paintings. And the ubiquitous lamps. Lamps with engravings and drawings and be, and of, of people engaged in sex. Every, all over the place. And, and between that and the ever-present brothels, which were taxed. So this was a part of the uh, political and economic machinery. Historians tell us that no one was shielded from sexual depictions. Men, women, and children were surrounded by paintings and carvings and actual acts of sexual activities in various stages of consummation. And so to summarize this awful history, Roman sexual morality was about class. If you were privileged, morality meant for women they had to be chaste. For men... They had to exercise power and control. If you were not privileged, if you were a slave, Roman sexual morality 
meant you would be exploited from an early age until your death. The culture, the, Rome, the Roman culture that Paul walked into early in AD 51 was geared to deliver sexual satisfaction at a highly efficient rate to freeborn men. And from archaeology and history, we know that even against the indulgent background of late Roman sensibilities, Corinth was excessive. And so it was into this chaotic atmosphere that we must see Paul walking. We must see those early Corinthian converts having grown up in that world. We must see them having thought that was reality as Paul teaches them to walk in the ways of the Lord. And when we turn to 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to these Christians a few years later, when we turn there, go ahead and find it if you've brought your Bible. We're going to look at a, a number of passages. When we turn there, we see that sexual holiness is not simply a rule, an arbitrary commandment. It is a part of what it means to turn from idols and serve the true and living God. It is part of being genuine image bearers of Yahweh. And the actual details of what it meant to be sexually holy was developed from two key foundational concepts. One positive and the other negative. The first one, the positive one, is creation. This is what we talked about last week. It, it turn, look in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want, you to sh I want to show you how Paul develops, uses this concept that we saw Jesus laid out last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul addresses sexual morality... In, in verse 16, by saying, Do you not know that he who is joined with the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's picking up Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He's rooting Christian morality in creation. We looked at this component last week. Remember in Matthew chapter 19 verse 4, Jesus was asked a very complicated uh, question about marriage and divorce. And his response was this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? And he goes on to quote Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And Jesus teaches us that the purpose of things in the beginning carries right on down through history to the present day. God put an order into creation. There's a purpose there. And so we saw that the essence of Christianity is that the creation of the Father was ruined by sin, but it is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. So the starting place for a Christian understanding of sexuality and gender cannot be 
Not ever. It can never be our experience or our intuitions or our feelings or our friendships. It always has to be God's original purpose in creation. We can't know right from wrong about sexuality and gender and all the complicated issues that we're going to start getting into next week. We cannot know these things if we do not start with God's original purpose. And last week we saw that the original purposes of sex are threefold. It is unitive, procreative, and sacramental. Good and true and beautiful sex is for others. It is for the spouse, it is for the world, and it is for God. Good sex attends to the beloved, not just in bed, but in the unified life together where both partners learn to die to self and serve one another in love. Good sex points us to our children. Good sex points us toward God. That was last week. The first of two fundamental issues for the distinctively Christian approach to sex. Creation. And now this week, we will see the second foundational element for Christian sexual morality is this. And I'm going to give it to you in a Greek word. And I need to do that, not not to feel half-lutin, but you'll see. The second foundational element for Christian sexual morality is this. Porneia. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. It's a Greek word. I'll translate it in just a minute. But it's important that we use this word tonight. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Look at the last phrase of that verse. The body is not meant for porneia. Your Bibles might translate it fornication or sexual immorality. It's weak. Um, and, and I'll show you why. The body is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, this word is just important to the Christian view of sex as creation is. These are the two pillars. This word is used 56 times in the New Testament. Now, what what does this word mean? Well, ironically... The place in the New Testament where it's given its most extensive treatment is in the letter to Corinth. Obviously, all the stuff we went over earlier. The place in the New Testament where we go to get our best understanding of this second foundational concept to a Christian view of sex is 1 Corinthians chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in these densely argued chapters... Paul addresses a series of problems in the Corinthian Christian community. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Paul begins the discussion by declaring, it is actually reported that there is porneia among you. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. So it seems that a man had begun to cohabit with his stepmother, probably widowed. Now remember the age differentials? That means the man who has entered into a sexual relationship with his stepmother, they're probably close to the same age. From the Christian perspective, this constitutes incest. 
Leviticus chapter 18 verse 8 clearly identifies one form of incest as sex with your parents' spouse. Now the Old Testament doesn't call incest porneia. But what happens is in the New Testament, porneia begins to expand and it begins to pick up other issues than just fornication. That's why fornication, we tend to think of fornication as um, sex outside of marriage with somebody else who's not married. But porneia is much bigger than that. In this case, it's incest. Notice the next verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Are you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? So from a Christian perspective, this relationship going on in Corinth is intolerable. And Paul is castigating the Corinthians for not only tolerating but feeling proud about the presence of such an enlightened person among them. And at the end of verse 2, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then down in verse 9, he reminds them that he had previously told them the same thing. I wrote you in my former letter, do not associate with pornois, people who practice porneia. What's going on here? Why is the, Christ, the Corinthian church, he's told them before about this, but why can't they get it? To understand why Part of the Corinthian church is proud of a thing that from Paul's perspective is so clearly and fundamentally wrong. We have to go to the next chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12. Paul is dealing with the background belief system that is undergirding this Christian church's approval of incest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12... Paul quotes a slogan being used by some of the Christians in Corinth. All things are lawful for me. This was like a, a banner for a libertine segment within the Christian population of Corinth. Now, where did this slogan come from? Two places. First of all, it's what they grew up with. It just was self-evident. Remember, if, you're, if you had grown up in the world, I spent the first 15 or 20 minutes describing, and not just you, but every one of your neighbors and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents, and the only people in the world who didn't have this were some weird little cult over in the corner of the empire that was so small, hardly anybody had ever heard of it. That's where it came from. It, it just was self-evident. Sex was just sex in the Roman Empire. It was one instinctual need among others. And all you had to do was channel it in the right direction, which was anywhere other than a married woman. In this society, it was expected that men would indulge their sexual desires with prostitutes, slaves, and others who lacked social honor. The second place it came from was Paul. About five years before writing this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul had written to the Christians in Galatia, boldly declaring on another con topic in another context, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then at that monumental Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, the Gentile Christians were freed from the magnificently intricate regulations of the Jewish dietary code. And apparently some of the Corinthian Christians were looking at the, the thing that was self-evident to everybody, the way they had grown up. And they heard Paul saying this thing. And they saw the Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, claiming that you're free from that stuff. And they put 
one and one together and got four, right? Or got whatever. That they, they decided that the freedom we have in Christ has, freedoms, has freed us from the highly demanding sexual code of the Old Testament. Now, what is Paul's response to this? His response to this is very sharp. He stops this line of thinking in his tracks. He unleashes a barrage of ideas and metaphors that came to define the boundaries of Christian sexual orthodoxy from then until today. Now, he could have ruled narrowly along the lines that sex is a moral category like violence or greed and not a merely ethnic cultic norm like rules about shellfish and Sabbath. That's not the way he goes about it. He could have enjoined Gentile Christians to obey the old Jewish codes which regulated sex in really detailed ways. That's not the way he goes about it. Instead, what he does is he offers a conceptual framework that while drawing some of its language and logic from familiar sources, offers an entirely fresh way of grounding sexual morality. His model of human sexuality flows from a grand vision of God restoring the cosmos to its original creation through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 13. Look at the last phrase in that verse. The body is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then in verse 15, Paul brings up another type of sexual behavior. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. The body is a temple, the place where God dwells. And so the stakes cannot be any higher. Like when he throws that down, he like ratchets this thing up as high as you can go. Look at verse 18. Flee, porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the porneia sin, that person, and here I'm going to translate it in a way your Bible probably doesn't. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the poiese, the person committing porneia, sins into his body. So porneia is walking into a temple and polluting it. It is an act of pollution in the sacred space of a Christian body. Now turn to chapter 7. Again, he begins chapter 7 verse 1 by quoting a Corinthian slogan. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Apparently there was another group. <laughs> this group, uh, in a, other than, over against the libertine segment that said you can have sex with prostitutes, slaves, boys and girls and any other avenue that was encouraged by the Greco-Roman culture. This group said, oh no, 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 no. No sex. Sex is bad. The body is a temple and sex is a pollution of the body. And Paul's response to this is not so fast, Kimazavi, right? No, no, no. Sex in marriage is not porneia. In fact, there are only two kinds of sex. Sex with the grain of the universe, which is sex in marriage between a man and a woman, 
and every other act of sex is porneia. Every other one. There's either married sex or porneia. Those are the only two categories. Not free man sex and free woman sex and slave sex and pubescent sex. Only two categories. Married sex between a man and a woman and porneia. And this was an earthquake of a move. Nobody in the world had ever done this. Nobody had ever stripped sex down to its utter and said, that's it. That's the only two categories. Good sex is sex in marriage between a husband and a wife oriented toward its united procreative and sacramental ends. And all other sex is against the grain of the universe. It's porneia. All sex beyond the marriage bed of a man and woman is bad sex. This is sex that strains against all the goodness that God has to offer us. Porneia is deformed sex. Sex contrary to God's good intentions. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 32, Jesus teaches us, quoting Jesus, anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of porneia causes her to commit adultery. Porneia for Jesus was this thing that was so serious, so heinous, it constitutes grounds for divorce. Porneia violates the faithfulness of the marriage covenant. It denies the reality that God has created a one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Porneia is to cheat. It is to break faith with your spouse. And your spouse can divorce you for it. Which form of porneia? Just pick. All sex outside of faithful married sex. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 18, Jesus is responding to an attack from some Pharisees. They've challenged him about washing hands. And Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, porneia, theft, False witness, slander, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, telling my mother from the deep south, that won't defile you. Jesus is connecting the heart to the body in a particular way. He is saying, porneia is visible bodily behavior produced by hearts captive to sin. Which kind of porneia? Pick one. Every single act of sex outside marriage between a husband and a wife. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, we see Paul telling us the glorious gospel truth that our salvation doesn't stop with our forgiveness. It moves on into our transformation. Like I said earlier, sexual holiness isn't just a rule, an arbitrary commandment. It is part of what it means to turn from idols and serve the living and true God. It's part of being a genuine image-bearing human being. So listen to what God tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from porneia. That's the fundamental will of God in this culture. 
That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. I mean, think about the culture he's saying this into. The will of God is that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here he is again, ratcheting it up as high as you can go with it. Sexual immorality is very, very, very bad. It is sex that rejects the power of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, which he poured out for us in the cross and the resurrection. And so our understanding of sex gone wrong can never be thought of as if I get sex right, then I can come to God. The order runs the other way. God the Father, because of what Christ has done, restores us to right relationship with Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit dwells in us, giving us the power to bear faithful witness in the world to what Christ has done. And at the center of that is fleeing porneia. It is the center of our witness in this world. If we don't get this right, we betray the gospel. This is a gospel issue. It is nothing short of that. Back in 1954, Flannery O'Connor wrote a short story with the title, A Temple of the Holy Ghost. It's about a homely Strong-willed, precocious 12-year-old girl. We're told we shouldn't read it as autobiographical of Flannery O'Connor, but it's hard not to. One weekend in the short story, her two second cousins come to stay at her house. They're older. They're 14 years old. And their names are Joanna and Suzanne, but they call themselves Temple One and Temple Two. Because just, after, just as they were leaving their Catholic boarding school to come to visit with the precocious 12-year-old cousin, one of the nuns, Sister Perpetua, grabs these two and says to them, you're a temple of the Holy Ghost and you need to use that on the boys. When you're in the back of a car trying to fiend off any fresh young men, you should say, stop, sir, I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost. The cousins mock this. They spend the weekend mocking the nun, calling each other Temple One and Temple Two. But the 12 year old girl doesn't. She doesn't think it's funny. She's deeply moved by the thought, the news that she is the dwelling place of God, makes this homely, lonely little girl. Feel as if someone has given her a present. And that's what the early Christians learned to do. They listened to what God was telling them through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And they learned to flee sexual immorality. And over the course of 300 years, the early church took on this exceptional view of sexuality in an empire full of cities that offered endless allurements. For 300 years, the early Christians learned to protect the bodily integrity of all women, slave and free. 
They learned to reject all sex outside of marriage. They learned that sex was sacred, that bodies were sacred, that children were sacred, that sexual morality was integral to the Christian vision of redemption. They learned that the proclamation of the gospel was inseparable from the issue of sex. And they learned to live this out in an environment where that view became the great divide between them and the rest of the world. So suck it up, church. It is the big divide. And we can't hide behind trying to appear different. They did it for 300 years. And then right under their nose, Rome changed. Carl Harper the foremost historian of Roman antiquity, sexuality, and slaves. I referenced him earlier. On the first page of his book, from the title, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity, published by Harvard Press. On the first page of the book, in the first paragraph, he says that the transformation of the Roman world, one of polytheism to Christianity, over the course of the first, second, and third centuries AD, was one of the most sweeping transformations in history. And in his own words, few periods of modern history have witnessed such brisk and consequential ideological change. And sex was the center of it. Harper calls this the first great sexual revolution. By the 4th century, Roman emperors began to pass laws making forced, coerced prostitution illegal. Laws supporting the better way of Christianity with its deep respect for all people, regardless of age, gender, and social class. It took 300 years. Now what does this mean for us today? One of the greatest living philosophers is the Canadian Charles Taylor. There you go. We got to name them when they're out there. Okay. That's a token Canadian. In 2007, he won the Templeton Prize for his groundbreaking book, A Secular Age. In this book, he describes the 1960s as the hinge movement in the long arc of secularism. And he says that the issue of sex was and is the crux of secularism. He says that in the 1960s, we saw the mass popularization of romanticism with its ideas about identity and freedom and love that we explored over our second, third, and fourth sessions together. And now we Christians find ourselves in an odd position. We are surrounded by a culture that bears some of our best values, The universal dignity of all humans. It didn't come from Greece. It didn't come from Rome. It came from Christianity. The fundamental importance of freedom. And yet the way our society holds these values are different than the way we Christians hold them. This is an odd position to be in. We're in a society that's holding some of our most cherished values, but holding them in ways that aren't quite the way we hold them. 
For Christians, these values are derived from the story of God's creation and restoration of his world. Remember, the essence of Christianity is that the creation of the Father was ruined by sin, but it is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. That's where we get those values from. And this is the story within which we understand sex. It is within this larger story of the gospel and its picture of a created cosmos that is in the throes of restoration. And so the difference between a Christian view of sex and the view of sex in our surrounding culture is not about conservatives versus liberals. It is not about restraint versus freedom. It is not about repression versus authenticity. Do not boil it down to that. That is a distraction. In our secular age, we Christians here in the West are beginning to experience what the church experienced when it was born. The differences between our view of sexual morality and that of the surrounding culture is the clash of a different view of the universe and the place of humans within it. The modern sexual revolution has a tremendous impact on churches. Why? Because our core beliefs all the way back have laid stress on sexuality rooted in creation, sternly opposed to porneia as right at the heart of the gospel. In the early church, sexual morality was not baggage. It was not an afterthought. It was not an accident. It was the plane on which Christians lived out their Christianity in the world. There is no leeway. There is no Tolerance for different opinions on this subject. For the early church, the Christian approach to sex was a fundamental, non-negotiable requirement to be in the community. Paul said, kick him out. Kick out who? The one who practices porneia. We must come to see our sexual lives as particular callings within God's mission. And we need to acknowledge and affirm that this is a heroic struggle in our culture with its emphasis on sexual freedom. The Christian practices feel alienating and they feel at times unbearable And we must remind one another that they sit within this great story and there are many ways that sex goes wrong. Christians don't claim this to shame people or to try to police other people's bodies. Christians claim this to tell the truth about the world. Christians claim this because any sexual ethic other than this is going to destroy people. And it will start with women. And it will move the children. It always plays out on the most vulnerable lines. We have to own this with courage. Now it's complicated how it works out. And next week we're going to start going for it. We're going to deal with gender, gender dysphoria, and homosexuality. But you don't start there. 
You don't start with the complicated relationships and exceptions. You start with the foundation. And there are two foundations. Creation and run like heck from Pornea. And everything else gets built on that. 